This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Clifford Shannon is Executive Vice President and Deputy Director for Museum Programs at the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York City. In that job, he oversees the museum's exhibitions, collections, and public programs. Cliff joins us today to talk about one of the 9-11 Museum's newest exhibits, Revealed, The Hunt for Bin Laden. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Micah Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters Declassified, Real Spy Stories. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Cliff, thanks for joining us on Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you, Michael. I'm a fan of the show, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. So, Cliff, everyone knows that we're approaching the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks just about four months from now. But what some people might find a bit surprising is that we actually just passed the 10-year anniversary of the U.S. operation that brought Osama bin Laden to justice. In fact, for me, it just seems like yesterday. We're very lucky to have you with us today to talk about your exhibit on the bin Laden operation. It's titled Revealed, The Hunt for Bin Laden. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So thank you for agreeing to do it. Before we dig into that, though, Cliff, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about you. And the first one is, what brought you to the 9-11 Museum? Well, that's a, an interesting question. Thank you, Michael. I'm happy to sort of take this uh, exhibition apart a little bit with you. Uh, I came to the museum uh, really in its earliest days in May 2005. I had, uh, in my years before coming to the museum, done two things, which were very, very separate, but 
very oddly converged on 9-11. The first of those was as a program officer at the Rockefeller Foundation, all this is pre-9-11, I had developed a program on the Islamic revival around the world. And, um, you know, in the course of developing that program and making grants to organizations in uh, different countries that were looking at this phenomenon, um, I traveled to many of these places. I became, you know, very, very familiar with the issues, the actors, and just what the nature of debate in many of these countries was. So I had that level of familiarity and experience. Um, on top of that, as a separate matter, I'd also developed an interest in the contemporary effects of mass violence in societies mm. around the world, not just mm. you know when it's happening at that moment, but the history of such violence and how it's manifested in contemporary societies, whether in public debates, whether in creative arts, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, those, as you might uh, understand, are very, very different things, but 9-11 brought them together in a very, very strange way that, at least in terms of my own personal experience, sort of connected things that all of a sudden, when you're planning a museum, as the 9-11 museum was in that early stage of planning, uh, it turned out to be a very useful combination of things to sort of think through some of the most difficult problems of how do you actually memorialize this? How do you mm -hmm. represent it in the contemporary moment? But thinking, of course, that this is a matter of history, increasingly so as all time goes on. So Cliff, what is it like to work at the museum every day? And I really ask that in the context of, you know, for many people, it's not an easy place to visit. You know, even for me, right, who spent so much time on this issue, I found it a tough place to visit. So what's it like to work there? Well, it's really an extraordinary experience. And, um, you know, I've been on this since 2005. The museum opened in May 2014. So we're now just not quite at our seventh um, anniversary. It's in the middle of May. Um, but, you know, people always ask, isn't it sad to be there? And certainly there are moments of great sadness uh, in thinking about a particular aspect of the museum visit or an object or something like that. But, you know, one of the things I've learned is that the 9-11 experience, the, the event, the aftermath, is really a reflection of the full range of human experience. Sadness is a part of it, but so mm -hmm. much else is as well. And I have seen all of those other things in relation to the sadness. And so I've met extraordinary people, many of them your colleagues, for example, who have done extraordinary things because of 9-11, who were inspired by 9-11. And so um, the experience of being there is extraordinarily enriching. It's something that uh, almost a day doesn't go by without something unexpected happening that taps very deeply into me as a person but not just to the sadness that the story very mm. naturally mm. evokes. Okay, so the hunt for bin Laden exhibit itself, what inspired that? Tell us about the idea, how long it took to go from idea to completion and opening and what that involved. Well, we have a special exhibitions gallery at the museum and uh, we had opened a show uh, which was based on artworks that were created um, in tribute to 9-11 uh, by a range of artists. And 
you know, uh, this gallery is one of the few places in the museum that has changing exhibitions. We have another couple of smaller locations, but this is really the place where we get to develop new ideas and new exhibitions. And so, um, as I say, the museum opened in 2014. So this is already uh, three years after Operation Neptune Spear. Uh, but as we were thinking about what our next project should be, uh, it did seem like this was a really important part of uh, the 9-11 story that uh, had been told in part. But you know, the question that we asked ourselves was, what can we bring to the table here in terms of expanding the story? And uh, we opened the exhibition November 2019. So I'm going back then four years or so before that, when mm. the idea first arose, because, you know, the challenge in thinking about this was, um, technically speaking, uh, the story is still classified. And while many of the leading public figures uh, had spoken about it, written about it uh, after the event, in terms of dealing with the agencies uh, that were involved and some of the people who were involved, that classification designation still applied. So we had to sort of reach out to a variety, initially on the intelligence side is where we concentrated, uh, because we wanted to tell really as full a story as we could. It wasn't just about the culminating mission. It was about how you got to the point of deciding that you could send the SEALs into Pakistan. Right. And so we had to approach a very wide range of agencies within the intelligence community uh, and ask them, this is what we're planning to do. How should we go about doing this? Which is a very strange question from a curator's point of view to be asking because we needed materials. And yet so many of these materials to show in the exhibition were not known to us. So how do we figure mm. out what is going to be made available to us. It was a fascinating process. It had uh, you know, a bit more winding than a typical exhibition would be. But um, we'd had already established uh, institutional relationships with a number of the agencies involved. And those relationships had nothing to do with this particular story. It was that even before the museum opened, the memorial opened on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. So we had already been receiving requests from military, law enforcement, intelligence agencies to bring groups to the museum. And at first, we didn't really fully understand what the intention behind those requests was. But very quickly, we understood that this was really about reconnecting the agencies and their members with the event of 9-11, right. which was transformative in the right, intelligence right. military world. And so we began to create programs that were specifically tailored for these visits. These weren't public visits. These were visits of groups of CIA officers or Navy SEALs or whoever it was. And we began really programming around that. And through those programs, we had developed contacts. I think we had developed a level of mutual knowledge and trust. And it was really out of those early connections that we felt confident, at least, that we would get a hearing within the intelligence community about our interest in doing this. So, Cliff, you said it opened in November of 19. I assume it was closed for a period of time during the pandemic and that it just reopened. Is that is that right? 
That's right. We uh, we had a great response, I have to say. Um, when we opened it in November 2019, uh, attendance for this exhibition was beyond what we had um, anticipated. Uh, and then, uh, as with everything else, uh, we just stopped in our tracks. The museum closed in May 2019. Uh, the museum did reopen uh, last September around the anniversary. And now, because of the size of the gallery and our wanting to be sure of how we could manage uh, visitors in the Special Exhibitions Gallery, the exhibition has reopened to reveal the hunt for bin Laden. So it is available for those who come to visit the museum. It's my understanding that if folks can't actually make it to New York to see the exhibit in person, that they can do it virtually. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yes. Thanks, Michael. Uh, we would love to have people, of course, at the museum, which is open and operating. But um, in case you can't get to New York and you would still like to uh, take part in the exhibition, uh, we are offering virtual tours on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at noon, and you can go to our website, 911memorial.org, to sign up for that. And we're also organizing tours uh, for groups. If you have a number of people who you'd want to bring together, we could do it on different hours. And for that, just write to groups at 911memorial.org. That's great. Okay, so let's let's talk about it in depth, and you know, feel free to take some time here. But just to kind of give people a sense of space, where is the exhibit relative to the rest of the museum? Where does it come in the flow of the entire museum? So uh, the museum overall is 110,000 square feet. Most of it, seven stories below ground at what we know of as the bedrock level of the World Trade Center. That's the original point of construction upwards into the sky. And so at that bedrock level, uh, we have our exhibition about the history of 9-11. We have a special memorial exhibition. We have our education center. And we have very, very large spaces, including those that go all seven stories up to the roof, uh, that contain very, very large objects that recall the volume and scale of the World Trade Center. It's in the footprint of the North Tower alongside the historical exhibition that you find the Special Exhibitions Gallery, which is about 3,000 square feet, and which is the location for Revealed. Great. Can you walk us through Revealed? You know, can you bring that to life for us? So we try to think of this story in chapters. Um, we're in the 9-11 Museum, of course, and so we didn't have to reiterate the story of 9-11 within the exhibition. We obviously had to understand that 9-11 was a critical moment in terms of the hunt for bin Laden. So we enter the exhibition in the pre-9-11 days, and we try to get a sense of what the intelligence community was doing in relation to the threat that certainly was understood to be coming from bin Laden and al-Qaeda, but wasn't necessarily appreciated that threat wasn't across the full range of the government. And so we have... Um, a number of objects that were only recovered after the um, uh, the war in Afghanistan began, when intelligence uh, agencies began investigating some of the uh, areas that uh, Al Qaeda had held. But that first gallery is really a look back to the pre nine eleven time. And an interesting story about one of the objects there. Uh, we were talking with 
various intelligence agencies in the course of developing the exhibition. And at one point, um, in fact, the meetings with all the agencies always went the same way. We would go in and begin to talk about the points we were trying to make in the exhibition at one moment or another. And, you know, we were asking for things, but describing them vaguely because we didn't know what there was. Mm -hmm. And you could always tell when you'd struck a chord because <laughs> the people in the room were kind of looking at each other. You could see the eyes going back and forth. <laughs> and I, I got to telling them, look, I know these meetings get much more, much more interesting when we leave the room because, you know, we'd have these meetings a couple of weeks later, people would come back to us and say, well, what do you think about, you know, this object or that object? And in this first part of the exhibition, we have the object that really represents this story for me because um, NGA had developed a model of the Tarnak Farms compound, which was where bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were located for a period just before 9-11. And they, didn't, they weren't able initially to tell us about it. And you know, NGA, which prides itself on um, its model making, uh, then had to find it. And they were kind of embarrassed because they told us, well, we think we have this, but then they had to come back and say, well, we're not sure we can find it. Eventually they did. And so this model of the Tarnak Farms complex is really at the center of this first part of the exhibition. And so they were a little bit embarrassed about it in the sense that I guess model making is more elaborate or the other models were more developed than this one, but we absolutely loved it because it's so much you know, a working artifact, if you will. It was very clear from looking at it that it was created for a very, very specific purpose related to the hunt. And so we were thrilled to have it. Uh, that's so great. that's really the first section of the exhibition. We go, of course, to uh, the three Al-Qaeda attacks, the embassy bombings, the USS Cole, and of course, 9-11. But we move uh, beyond that into the initial phases of the war in Afghanistan. And again, we had to decide, well, we're not, you know, telling the story of the war in Afghanistan. So what do we do about that? And so um, we focused on, of course, the initial American uh, arrivals, including uh, Jawbreaker, the first American boots on the ground being CIA officers. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, really where we take the military piece of the story is to... Uh, the Tora Bora complex in the White Mountains of Afghanistan, which is where the last known sighting of Osama bin Laden was. And so right. we move relatively quickly. We did have in this uh, part of the exhibition what I think of as an extraordinary loan from the CIA, which is uh, the painting that is normally on display uh, at CIA headquarters, uh, known the painting is Cast of a Few, Courage of a Nation, which shows uh, some of those jawbreaker uh, officers on the ground uh, in uh, Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, we try to get you to the point of we're looking for somebody in a specific place. We sort of have an idea of how to look for him, whether or not we're going to succeed is a different matter. But then, of course, he disappears. And the question becomes, well, what happens next? We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Cliff Shannon. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, Cliff, what's next in the flow? So the next part of the exhibition, really, it was the most challenging for us because the question became, you know, how do you indicate in physical objects and in interviews, because the uh, the exhibition incorporates both physical artifacts, most of it, most of them borrowed, but also media pieces based on interviews we did with, of course, some of the key actors in this, but also some of the operators and analysts who were behind the scenes for all of this. And so, you know, we're talking about what is essentially uh, a ten year period mm-hmm. uh, during which for a large part of that 10-year period, you're looking, but you don't really know what, you're, what you've got and you're not finding. And so how do, you, uh, how do you demonstrate that? And we did that in a couple of ways, I think. In terms of uh, the interviews we had, including with folks who were still um, active uh, within the intelligence community, uh, they were able to explain to us uh, in really clear but quite brilliant ways what the logic of the hunt was. So we weren't Mm. really able to get kind of a history of all of the leads because a lot of that was classified. We weren't necessarily able to give a history of who did what when because that too was classified. But we were able to track kind of a history of the logic of the hunt. And um, as it was described to us by uh, one of your former colleagues, Michael, um, it really turned on going from a hunt for a location to a hunt for the few people who could be hiding bin Laden. And as we understood it, this really was a very, very important change in how the hunt was focused. Yes. And then, of course, you don't have that many people who we would trust to hide him. And there aren't all these places around the world. It really becomes focused in a very, very different way. And as you know well, um, intelligence agencies develop what they know of as a pattern of life. You know, what kind of characteristics should we be looking for in a potential location? What sort of characteristics should we be looking for in the people who are hiding him? And that really transformed, frankly, my understanding of what the hunt was. But it also gave us something to hold on to in terms of moving the narrative forward. We also Does the want- exhibit... Does the exhibit, Cliff, give a sense of when that happened? Um, and, you know, was it a kind of an instant thing or is it something that evolved over time? My sense of it was, and I think you know the answer to this, but my sense of it was it evolved over time. That, yeah. um, as, as uh, one of your colleagues described it to me, um, you know, in the initial period after 9-11, you know, any lead got maximum attention. And basically you were running around all over the place, just trying to make sure you didn't miss a lead. And then there was a period of time where there weren't that many leads, if any at all. And that dark time, uh, as I understood it, was very usefully applied to rethinking the whole structure of the hunt and really beginning to dig in on the question of, 
let's try to understand how he would be living and let's try to understand who he would be relying on, who he'd be living with. And so um, that, I would guess, uh, takes you through 2003, 2005, really almost up to the time that the lead to Abbottabad emerges. At least that's my understanding of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Keep going. This is fan- This is wonderful. You know, so we wanted to represent you know, why is this so urgent still? So there are other attacks uh, in in Indonesia, in London, in Madrid, in Istanbul that are either inspired by bin Laden or carried out by Al-Qaeda. So the risk of, of, of not finding him was something we very much wanted to manifest. Mm. We had a missing po- or a wanted poster, excuse me, from Indonesia, uh, uh, from London, from the, the, from the bombings. We wanted to show the kind of sweeping um, efforts that were being made by the military to gather materials that could be analyzed for intelligence value. So uh, some of the things that were swept up in uh, military raids, which then became the technique that special operations forces alongside uh, civilian intelligence analysts who'd gone forward to their bases. Those were the kind of things that they were working together on. It, it, at this point, as we understood it, the military and intelligence communities really came together in a very different kind of way on the front lines to have these cascading raids that would generate materials that could be turned around very, very yes. quickly in terms of breaking up the networks, whether in Afghanistan or Iraq that posed a threat to American forces. So we, in this section of the exhibition, we kind of look a bit at techniques and the way things were done that kind of honed the blade that when the lead to Abbottabad emerged uh, could be applied very, very directly and very precisely to that kind of target. You know, one of the things that uh, Bill McRaven told me once, the commander of the operation, Neptune Spear. He told me, had we not done all of those raids that we did over the years, the bin Laden operation probably wouldn't have been possible, right? It, it, it really flowed from the trust that was created by those, those operations, right, to, to Abbottabad, uh, that that trust was so important between the intelligence community and the military. So it's it really became- hear you tell you. Yeah. It really became a very, very important part of the further development of this project because, you know, we had gathered so much material through the interviews, we realized we couldn't tell the fullest, the fuller story that we had only in the exhibition. There's only so much time that people are going to, you know, spend watching videos in the exhibition space. So we um, produced a documentary film, which has just been shown on the History Channel. And we added a number of really, really important interviews for that film. And what's interesting in relation to the point you just made, we're now talking with the military planners, with uh, some of the operators, with some of the pilots on the mission. And so many of them said exactly what you just attributed to Admiral McRaven, which is, you know, the people who were, for example, the first military planners of this mission, who were called in to the agency and said, here's what we know. How do you figure to go about doing this? You know, they both, uh, or all I should say, commented on the people who were presenting this material to them 
were known to them. They had worked together before on other things. They knew one another. They knew what their priorities were. They knew to trust each other. And so uh, it really reinforces McRaven's point, which is this method of operating so closely together on the front lines um, is, is really just kind of essential to getting to the point where the enormous risk of flying into Pakistan for 169 miles, that enormous risk was something they were more confident taking, I believe, because they knew one another and they trusted one another. Okay, Cliff, let's keep going through the exhibit. So, of course, the critical moment, the turning point for the whole story is uh, the lead to uh, the couriers that brings them back to this mysterious compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And, you know, the story basically has three acts. The first act is essentially the intelligence that develops this lead. The second act is the policymakers saying, including, of course, President Obama, saying, well, let's take this apart. Can we really act on this? And when they decide to act on it, or at least consider it, how do you actually act on it? What do you do? How do you go after them? And so we pick up that debate about whether it should be uh, a raid or whether it should be a standoff bombing. Uh, we pick up the debate uh, within the situation room, uh, within the agencies themselves about, you know, is this good enough? How can we make the lead better? Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, as Secretary uh, then of Defense Gates says, you know, this is as good as it's going to be. It's not going to be any better. So you've got to make your decision on this information. And of course, we pick up the training of, uh, of the mission force as, uh, as developed by Admiral McRaven. And uh, we've interviewed uh, six of the operators from the mission, uh, two of the pilots from the mission. And so just getting a sense of how the pieces were put together, leading, of course, to that extraordinarily dramatic moment where... I believe it's uh, the final briefing and discussion at the White House on April 28th, 2011. The president says, um, thank you. I'm going to take this under advisement and mm-hmm. make a decision within 24 hours. And so, you know, we tell that story in uh, much more detail than I think uh, has been known before. And it's so interesting in my mind, sort of the human dimension of this. I mean, you know, we think of these, our leaders as, you know, somehow omniscient or, you know, making decisions that, you know, have a degree of certainty to them. And one of the things that just came clear to me through this was just how serious this was at a decision-making level because of the consequences. And you just couldn't know how this was going to turn out, even though, as President Obama ultimately decided, he couldn't turn away from the commitment he made to the families and not follow up on this lead by sending an assault force to the compound. It's, it's, it's a very, very dramatic human story. And the different personalities of the leaders come through. I mean, Director Panetta, that very avuncular sort of <laughs> open style that he has. Yes. Uh, President Obama, one of his advisors, says at one point, you know, I'd never play poker with this guy because he's impossible to read. Uh, 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 Secretary Gates, who, you know, his humor comes out of this. But, you know, he comes, I think, Michael, from your world originally in terms of intelligence analysis and his, you know, very, very 
sort of hard and fast way of looking at what's in front of him. So you get these snippets of the personalities and how the personalities came together uh, to debate, discuss, and ultimately for the president to decide to go ahead. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Cliff, I would love to have you tell us about a couple of your favorite artifacts that are in the exhibit. I'd be very happy to do that. Um, you know, that is, um, it's almost, not quite, but almost like asking a parent who your favorite child is because, <laughs> you know, in this exhibition in particular, we didn't know any of these materials before we got them. And so each one feels like a triumph of some kind or another. But yeah. I, I do have to say that um, we were given the loan by NGA of the compound model that they developed and that was used for the briefings of the president that was used to sort of bring the seals in and tell them what their assignment was. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's another model at uh, the CIA museum. I know, yes, yes, um, yes. but that is, you know, we had a moment where the model makers came up from Washington to see the model, um, uh, in the museum. And first off, while they were making the model, they had no idea what they were making a model of. So that was sort of a surprise to them when it turned out that this was sort of the most important operate, special operations mission since the war, World War II. Um, but they came to the museum and it was really just a great moment because, you know, you could see these folks who toil in anonymity, let us say. Um, and all of a sudden, you could see it striking them that they had contributed to this extraordinary historic moment. And I dare say they're not necessarily frontline folks. And so where their contributions fit in may not always be clear or acknowledged. But I saw this with the model and with so many of the other objects. When you put them in a museum, they are elevated into their place in history. And for the model makers to see it, it was just it was a great moment. Uh, you know, for me, getting that model, when we got, uh, when Robert Cardillo, who was then director of NGA, uh, signed off on the loan of the model, it was uh, for me as if we had been given the loan of the crown jewels from the Tower of London. I mean, this model is sort of the symbol of the entire mission in yeah. many ways. Yeah. And so, I realized, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore when when uh, uh, we got that sign off. And, you know, what accelerated through the process was the cooperation of the various agencies involved, whether on the intelligence side or on the military side. Um, I said earlier that I think we had established a level of trust with them. But I think it's also true that um, because the museum is what it is because it represents the 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 sentiment of the country around 911. Uh, I think they felt that we should be telling this story, and also that 
the extraordinary work that was done to find him and to get him uh, needed to be acknowledged publicly that, you know, within all the proper protocols and protections, that this was a story that the American public needed to know about because, you know, the work that is needed is ongoing. The threat continues. Uh, there's a young generation 20 years ago. Uh, most of them were not born when 9-11 happened. And here they are inheriting a world that to a very large degree has been shaped by 9-11. The agencies and the military are continuing that mission um, and need young people to come in because they're inspired to do so. And so uh, having this story told uh, publicly uh, in a in an accessible venue because the CIA museum does it too, but that's not the same thing. Um, you know, I think that became of value to uh, our partners in this exhibition as well. So I want to ask you another favorite child story. In addition to artifacts, you have immersive multimedia experiences in the exhibit. Can you talk about one or two of your favorites there? Yeah, we have a very large projection, uh, a, a, a screen that goes pretty much 30 feet across. And um, and then we have basically a five by five foot square table at about knee height. So these are not the typical uh, monitors on a wall in the exhibition. That first panoramic projection takes us through the part of the story that really describes how you hunt for someone when you have no leads and you're you're and he's hiding from you. And so that sense of the scale of things and you're able to really take it in in different angles and different ways that I think is uh it works very mm. well I think. And mm. then of course the projection downward onto this platform which is next to the compound model that projection tells the story of the raid in the voices of the operators who were carrying it out and the policymakers who were watching this happen and were basically an audience as helpless as any other audience would be just waiting for the outcome of it. And there we have animations and we have, you know, just the movement of the operators through the compound. And I think both of those really capture something very, very, you know, we know the, we know the conclusion of the story. So the question is, how do you maintain the tension of the story? Mm -hmm. And I think our media producers really did that beautifully, particularly with the uh, media piece on the raid itself. One other thing about that section of the exhibition, we were given the loan of objects that were brought back from the compound, um, a computer uh, uh, unit, um, a video camera that was found there, a wristwatch. So, you know, the idea that there's a real person at the other end of this and real people are going out to get him because we have loans from the SEALs as well, uh, I think that part of the exhibition really, really captures the human dimension of the story because, you know, obviously the heroism is the first headline in this, but, you know, these were actually, you know, individuals who were going far deep into harm's way and they had thoughts about it in real time about the sacrifice that they were being asked to risk. It's, it, it felt very powerful to me at the beginning of the exhibition and it still does. Cliff, let me just ask you one more question here. We're running, we're running a little short on time, but just one more question. When the exhibit was open, you know, before it was closed by the pandemic, what did you notice about people's reactions? Well, the public really did 
stand in line to get into the gallery space. We even before COVID, we were limiting the number of people because we wanted you know people to have enough time to see the exhibition. And um, it was clear that this was having an impact on them. And uh, you know, it's a time where everybody pulls together. As nine eleven was a time where everybody pulled together, and you know, the opportunity to dig into this extraordinary accomplishment, uh, which really was a priority for the U.S. government for those 10 years between 9-11 and Neptune Spear. I think people really appreciated that. But I will tell you one more quick story, um, Michael. The the preview of the exhibition, uh, we did a reception at the museum where we were able to invite some of the folks who we'd interviewed, some of the folks who'd had a role in this. And um, we also invited many family members from mm. the 9-11 community. Mm. And um, at the request of the family members and also of the operators and the analysts who were there, um, we made some introductions. And I think you can imagine those were extraordinarily powerful, very, very emotional moments. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I know that the story of uh, a couple of the analysts being introduced to uh, the grandmother of the youngest 9-11 victim who got up out of her wheelchair to embrace them. I know that mm. story made its way back to to the mm. agency and to uh, the most senior leadership of the agency. And, you know, we're incredibly grateful for the uh, cooperation and goodwill that allowed us to make the loans, to get access to the interviews. Um, it really didn't have to happen, uh, but um, we're thrilled that it did. And I, I, I think, I hope that the resulting exhibition sort of justifies those decisions to um, partner with the museum. Cliff, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. People obviously need to go see the exhibit, but thank you for joining us today and for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. That was Cliff Shannon. I'm Micah Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.